Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 106, the psalm appointed for today, Friday, May the 7th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're looking at, in addition to that psalm, we're looking continually uh, this week at the Book of Wisdom, also from the Epistle to the Roman Church, and the Gospel of Luke. And so the, the <coughs> wisdom reading today is from Wisdom 16, verse 15, through 17, verse 1. And it, it begins again with a poignant reminder in this, that it's not possible to escape your hand. So ultimately, it goes back to what David, the father of Solomon, said in Psalm 139, which is, there's nowhere to hide from you. Wherever I go, you're there. And and David said that's a comforting thought, and it is a comforting thought for those who know the Lord. Even if we're in the midst of sin and attempting to hide from the Lord, the comfort is that he is there, and, and he is looking and searching for us, calling us to repent calling us back to himself. We are wayward sheep, and he's trying to bring us back to himself, not to to cause us to feel guilty or not to condemn us. He's there to convict us of sin in order that we might return to ourselves and return to him in that whole process. And so it's an important thing for us to know that, that ultimately our goal is not just to escape judgment, it's to participate in eternal life and to bear witness to and give glory to him in this life. And so, it, but Solomon here is speaking specifically about judgment, whether judgment now or in judgment in the in the world to come. And what he says is that, that he's, he's pointing towards the Egyptians and pointing towards the events that lead up to the exodus from Egypt of God's people. And, and what he's saying in, in all these things is exactly what God himself said, that he was going to get glory in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so he's, in the things that God does in order to, to bring his people out of Egypt, the judgments that he shows on Egypt and the gods of Egypt and the plagues, those things are designed to do one thing, and that's to bring down the idols, so that the people might see that there is one true living God who is supreme and powerful over all gods, that in fact the gods that they worship are no gods at all. You can't properly call something a god if something if, if a greater power exists. And God, by, by doing the work of those plagues, is exposing those things is no gods. He's exposing that, but he's also exposing and revealing himself to them. And and the point sometimes can be lost in all that. That, that I, I can remember a lady who wrote an wrote a sort of a weekly or maybe more often column in a paper where we lived before. Um, she she wrote on quasi-religious topics. She had previously been married to a pastor, um, and and she would write on these things from, um, when I say liberal, I don't mean that as far as her politics. I mean it as far as her, her belief system goes, because she told this story 
which is an apocryphal story, and it's meant to be a stopper for evangelism, actually. And the, the story goes something like this, that, that there was a guy who felt called to go and speak to um, people in uh, native people in Alaska, and he went there and shared the gospel with somebody and, and explained to them they had to make a choice between Jesus and um, eternal death. And, and the person says, so if you had not told me this, would I be responsible for it or liable for this knowledge? And, he, and the, the evangelist said no. Um, he said, so I would have blissfully gone to heaven had you not uh, told me that I had to make this decision. And the, the evangelist says, well, more or less. And, and the response is, then why did you tell me? That's only a stopper if you don't understand that that is not what salvation means. Salvation has a present effect, not just a uh, future effect. It, it, I've explained the universe to you. If I've shared the gospel with you properly, I've explained the universe as well as your, your own position in the universe. And now you have cause for rejoicing because you can't just sort of blissfully fall into eternal life. No, you have that to look forward to. You have the certainty of eternal life, but you have the Holy Spirit given to you now. So there's a present effect as well. As Christians should be the most joyous people on the face of the earth in many ways because we know with certainty how all of this ends. We should be mourning as well because we see the effects of sin on the world and we see the oppression of people under the burden of sin. But to go and tell that person is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with, with the effect of today being a great day, simply because he is here in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. And so it's meant to collect us into that great family that's founded on Jesus as the elder brother who made the way for all of us to be adopted as children of God. It's, it's the movement in my life from being a created thing to be a chosen child of the Creator. And that's meant to give me joy now and hope, a certain hope, later because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it's an amazing thing to think that that would be a stopper, would be, then why did you tell me if I was going to get that reward anyway? Well, the reward doesn't begin then, it begins now with a joy that's that's unsurpassable even it not you can't even reach it with things of the earth the joy of knowing Jesus and knowing the truth about all things is the point of telling you that <clears throat> and and it just it, it, it's amazing to me the way that people understand this and then and the Jesus makes the or Solomon sorry makes this comment in the middle of this passage that that it, Jesus, you hear the same thing when Jesus responds to the temptation of Satan. He says that thy children, O Lord, whom thou lovest, might know that it's not the growing of fruits that nourishes man, but it's thy word which preserveth them that put their trust in thee. For greater thy judgments and cannot be expressed, therefore unnurtured souls have erred. And, and that's Solomon's getting at the point that Jesus made that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's just taking that from Deuteronomy. This is not something that, it, that that starts with Solomon, and it's not something that, it, that even starts with Jesus. But, but it's the explanation of the most important thing being the Word of God. And we know that the Word of God is written, but we also know the Word of God is embodied in Jesus. 
and, and those are the things that we need to cling to in all things. And then we see, you remember yesterday in that gospel passage, we were looking at Jesus going and healing the Gerasene demoniac and then leaving him there as a testimony to the people and, and telling him that his job is to testify to the people. These people who will never see Jesus again will always have among them this man who Jesus healed and who he delivered from this demonic possession that he was under. And, and, it's, and it's important that, that that witness remain behind so that they can't later deny what actually happened and, and call it some sort of an illusion or something like that. And, and maybe this man didn't even exist at all. Maybe we just dreamed that up. But no, Jesus leaves him there to be that kind of witness. And when he comes back, it says the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And then came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, who fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now Jairus, this synagogue ruler, knew, had to have known, that Jesus had come from the country of the Gerasenes. And they may have seen what happened there. They may have seen him in, in this um, incredibly ritually um, unclean situation. First, being in the country of the Gerasenes would have made him ritually unclean. It would have made him unable, under uh, ritual law, to enter even the house of Jairus. But Jairus is begging him to come there anyway. And, and not only did he go to the country of the Gerasenes, he, he's with a demon-possessed naked guy in the tombs. And then pigs come into this. I mean, it's just you couldn't get much more defiled than Jesus was. But Jairus doesn't care because he has a bigger need than that, and only Jesus can resolve that and can can um, fulfill the need that he has in his life for the healing of his daughter. And then, so if that weren't enough, as people, as Jesus is going to the house. There's people pressing all around him. And then a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her living on physicians and couldn't be healed by anybody, she's got one last hope too. And she doesn't care where Jesus has been either because her hope is only in him. And so it doesn't matter about any of the things that have to do with ritual purity. She comes and she does something that is that is just dramatically out of line. And that is she has to stay away from other people because this discharge of blood, she's considered to be unclean. But no, she's desperate for this healing. She spent everything she has. She has nothing left. The only hope she has left is Jesus. And so she presses forward and she touches the fringe of his garment and immediately the flow of blood ceased. She didn't care that she was she, she was risking defiling Jesus at this point. She was desiring to be healed more than she was concerned about the ritual law. And so she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment and is, is instantly healed. And Jesus turns and says, who is it that touched me? Well, nobody says anything, right? And then, nope, nope, I don't know anything about that. And Peter says, look, there's all these people pressing in on you. What do you mean, who touched you? There's no telling who touched you. He says, somebody touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And not that it diminished the power that was in Jesus. Because you can't diminish that power. But, but he felt and knew that something had happened. And then the woman comes forward and trembling and falling down before him declares in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, which is really making you whole. Go in peace. 
So it wasn't the touching, it was her faith. But the faith led to the touching. And she's been made whole in all these things. And, and, and that what a great thing that would be. Just to be healed wouldn't be enough, but all the stuff that she had endured emotionally during that time, all the things that she had um, had missed and lost during that time, she had lost fellowship with the people in many ways because people would have known that she had this discharge of blood. She wouldn't have been allowed to go to the temple or the synagogue during that entire time. And so when she is restored here, she's not just restored to health, she's restored to community, she's restored uh, emotionally from all that she has suffered during that time is, is the word that Jesus uses there. So while he's even telling her this, somebody else comes up and says, Hey, Jairus, um, your daughter died, so there's no reason to bother Jesus anymore about this. And Jesus looks at the man and says, Don't fear and only believe, and she will be well. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to say. Don't fear, only believe to a man who has just found out that his daughter has died. I know that. I know that feeling a little bit because we went through some of that with this recent situation with Will. I mean, it, God had to say again and again and again to me, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. And I had to keep praying one simple prayer, and that is, is that I believe, Lord, heal thou my unbelief. Because there were things that would come at us, you know, that whether a doctor would say something or a nurse would say something or whatever, that would, that would indicate that there's no hope here. But my hope wasn't in them to start with. But still, you can't help but be knocked off center whenever somebody says certain kinds of things to you. And so I kept hearing the voice of God saying exactly this thing. Don't fear, only believe. And I believed, but I needed to heal my unbelief because it exposed my unbelief. That fear exposed my unbelief in those situations. And so Jesus goes on to the house, and he wouldn't allow anybody to enter with him except his three chosen disciples, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus goes into the house, which he never should have done under ritual laws of purity. But Jairus, again, is desperate enough that he realizes those things are secondary issues here in this situation. And so he brings him in, and Jesus makes the comment, because everybody there is weeping and mourning, and she's, he says, don't weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And he speaks two words, child arise. And she wakes up and gets up, and then he tells her to have something to eat, and then he tells them to tell no one what had happened. He told exactly the opposite in the Gerasene story, that, that you've got to stay here and tell everybody what happened. It's because it's the only witness they're going to have. And it's going to lead them to come seek after him if they believe that this is indeed true and that he has this kind of power, the power to cast out demons, the power to cause fear in all these people. And so here, though, Jesus is among his people. And so they've got to evaluate a different set of criteria. Now, everybody knew about this, obviously, because there were so many people there, and they heard all this. And so they knew that she had died, and they knew that Jesus had then raised her to life from the dead. And so they had to know these things, and yet Jesus t says, don't tell anybody about this. And it's simply because he, he wanted their faith to be based in what they had seen, and they, they had had enough witnesses and they needed to make up their minds about him one way or another whether he was their messiah which is different from the garrisons the, the word will go forth from there and they'll know ultimately about the resurrection over there because the word had to get there there's no question that it got there 
And so Paul continues this whole thing, this this argument that he's making about don't don't let inessential things divide you. And he says, you know, don't pass judgment on each other any longer. Rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And so he's telling us that that we have freedom if the Spirit has given us freedom. If we're not convicted in our spirit, if we don't doubt in something, if we are solid in our faith about something, if we believe something particularly uh, to be true, and it's not uh, out of line with Scripture, then we have the freedom to do those things. It, it, but we got to listen to one another, he says. It doesn't mean that we have freedom in anything where Scripture has been clear. And so what we want to do and what we try to do and what we successfully do is convince ourselves that Scripture doesn't actually say something. It's the question that goes all the way back to the garden. Did God really say? And, and that is the issue that we always face. Did God really say these things? And so we have the witness of the church down the years, just as Jesus is pointing here to the witness of himself and his presence. What, what we have is the witness of his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church down all these years. And so the, the big thing that, that would cause the separation in the Reformation was a theological truth that Jesus was enough, that we didn't need a pope in addition to that because the Holy Spirit reigned in us and lives in us and leads us into all truth. And so public pronouncements of popes and, and rulers like that who are ruling in something less than true, which would, was the argument of Luther through the... Um, the, um, the sale of indulgences, for instance, um, those kinds of things, he said, are enough to separate from. Those, those things are essentials, that, that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and so that was the, that's the essential, that the principle that Luther cited in separating himself from the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't have to do with uh, a great many other issues. There are, there are other issues, and we can, we can decide whether those are essentials or non-essentials. But for Luther, the essential was faith in Christ alone. That's what saved him, not something else, not anything added to that. And so when we, we think about these other issues... When we look at these other issues, like what we're eating and all that, whether we eat, whether we're vegetarians or whether we can eat meat and all that, then those are those are secondary issues. They're not salvation issues, and so we have freedom in those things. But what Paul says is that that yes, you do have freedom in those things, but make sure that you're absolutely convicted that God has said something specific to you about these things before you act on them. Because he says, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. Everything, everything, literally, begins with faith. And that's exactly the message Jesus gave to this Father this day, that it all begins with faith. Don't doubt, but believe.